Hi guys, before we start the show, I just want to throw out a couple of ways that you can support us and help to keep the podcast sustainable. Now we're an Audible affiliate, so if you fancy an audiobook subscription service, hit them up through our link, which is audibletrial.com forward slash darkhistories, and you get a free month, including one free book of your choice. Alternatively, you can support us directly. We have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories, and over there you can get bonus episodes, early access to the show, access to our Discord, and access to all my research notes. All those links will be in the show notes or over at the support page at darkhistories.com. And if times are tight and you're a bit hard up, and I think we can all appreciate that, it's no worries, you can support the show by just sharing it around on social media with your family, friends, and all those other good people. All right, let's crack on with the show. Cheers. In the 1600s, there were many ways to make a living. Job titles were as diverse as today. Agricultural professions thrived in the rural areas. Skilled craftsmen were plenty with every town and hamlet boasting blacksmiths, gunsmiths, tailors and weavers. At the top end of society, clerks, lawyers, wig makers and doctors paraded themselves boldly through the cobbled streets. Matthew Hopkins chose a slightly different path. Bestowing upon himself the job title of Witchfinder General, His was a short career spanning just two years. However, what it lacked in longevity, it made up for in results. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Welcome, Season 2, Episode 9. I'm Ben, and I'm alone today, so the chat is going to be pretty brief. A little bit of news about that towards the end of the episode, but for now... Yeah, a little bit of news in the week with the Hysteria Rapist and the original, or it has several monikers, doesn't it? Hysteria Rapist, the original Night Stalker or Golden State Killer has been apprehended after, what is it, like 40 odd years now. So, you know, the true crime community is going absolutely mental. I was sort of scratching around on the internet as I do, looking for mysteries this week and that was playing a big role. So... Yeah, glad I didn't do an episode on that guy because I nearly did several times um, and I always put it off and uh, now I'm quite glad because it would have been totally redundant. Although I suppose, depending on how it all works out, we could do an episode on him on the future. But yeah, so that's, that's kind of good news. Finally, justice being kind of done. As far as Dark History's news goes, we've got some merchandise available. I've designed a couple of t-shirts. I didn't want to just slap Dark History's name all over everything. So I've got a couple of T-shirts showing off some of the old episodes. We've got a Summerton Man T-shirt or Summerton Beach T-shirt and uh, a Raoul Polytechnic, which is a Jatlov Pass, little nod to Jatlov Pass T-shirt and hoodies and that sort of jazz. But yeah, they're both kind of like kind of retro-y style. One of them's a kind of college style and the other one's just a kind of, Retro beach t-shirt, I guess. Yeah, check them out if you're interested. And we actually have a competition, so you can win one of the Dark Histories t-shirts. Basically, if you go onto our Twitter, follow us at Dark Histories on Twitter, or go onto our Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Dark Histories podcast, you'll see a post that's pinned to the tops of both those profiles, I believe. And if you give it a like, give it a share, you get entered into a draw to win one of our t-shirts, which will be the first and 
you know, possibly only Dark History's T-shirt that we ever sell. So, and it'll be to me so I can send it to you. So getting there on that, something unique. <laughs> but yeah, no, we have, um, yeah, we have some merch. You can get that if you go on darkhistories.com, you'll see a merch link and check out the T-shirts there. But yeah, chance to win one. Jump on our social media, give those posts a share and a like. And that closes on the 11th of the 5th. Otherwise, that's pretty much it for the news. So yeah, on with the episode. This is the story of the Witchfinder General, or Matthew Hopkins. The 17th century was a turbulent period of great upheaval. The Thirty Year War raged across mainland Europe, devastating communities who were gripped by famine, sickness and fear. On the shores of England, society crumbled and further broke down with the outbreak of civil war in 1642 that lasted until the beginning of the next decade and led to an almost complete collapse of traditional authority throughout the land. The wars in England were revolutionary in nature, with both nationalism and religion as driving forces. The people were not only concerned with how the country was to be governed, pitting royalists against parliamentarians, but also how their religion was to be controlled. Catholics struggled to maintain their grip whilst Protestant uprisings, driven by a core of Puritans, fought for a simpler form of worship. The devastating, drawn-out and complicated years of turmoil created a vacuum at the heart of society as traditional hierarchies, cornerstones across communities and most importantly for today's tale, legal systems crumbled. Within this vacuum, a dark cloud of fear bred, feeding on a devoutly religious and deeply superstitious population who felt increasingly isolated. Royalist figures such as Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who had gained notoriety through rumour and hearsay for their warring ruthlessness, were caricatured into demonic forces, and as the imagery persisted, so too the superstitions grew. Communities looking for protection and finding none from traditional authorities instead turned inwards, seeking new answers in old thinking to timeless problems. Throughout European history, superstitious fear had long held a grasp over societies and culture, often when traditional structures broke down in times of strife. As already established, The 17th century was no stranger to strife and, as such, a devoutly religious population began looking back at these old traditions steeped in folklore, seeking to find a comprehensible answer for complex problems. Sickness, poor crop yields and family losses were often blamed on outside forces and were often demonic or supernatural in nature. As far back as the late 10th century saw an unnamed woman and her son drowned at London Bridge for falling under suspicion of witchcraft. Over the next 300 years, sporadic hangings and drownings were undertaken in the name of heresy throughout Britain for misdemeanours as diverse as necromancy, stigmata and at times straight murder, which whilst grotesque, as in the case of a Jewish murderer who wrapped one of his victims in a second victim's skin in the 13th century, had little to no supernatural leanings. The 14th and 15th centuries saw a slow ramping up of trials for heresy, which slowly evolved into a complicated hierarchical categorisation in law, one such category being the use of demonic sorcery 
eventually spawning the Witchcraft Act in 1542, outlining the act of witchcraft by name as a felony, punishable by death. This act forbade the use of witchcraft to use, devise, practice or exercise, or cause to be devised, practiced or exercised, any invocations or conjurations of sprites, witchcrafts, enchantments or sorceries to the intent to find money or treasure, or to waste, consume or destroy any person in his body, or to provoke any person to unlawful love, or for any other unlawful intent or purpose. In 1563, a second witchcraft act named An Act Against Conjurations, Enchantments and Witchcrafts passed in England, which promised to put to death anyone who used magic to use, practice or exercise any witchcraft, enchantment, charm or sorcery, whereby any person shall happen to be killed or destroyed. In many respects, it was actually more lenient on the accused, only punishing witchcraft with a death sentence when it caused death or harm to a third party. For everyone else, a year's imprisonment was deemed punishment enough. With the need for the law to highlight such misdemeanours and lay out punishments in writing, one can assume that the act of witchcraft itself was rampant throughout Britain, at least in the minds of the devout. It was, in fact, less so in Britain than in mainland Europe, though the law was still strong and seeded the mind with enough common belief that in 1590, even the king himself fell foul to what he labelled as witchcraft in a tale that was never questioned as fiction. The now famous story follows King James VI as he voyaged across the sea to Copenhagen in order to marry Princess Anne of Denmark. On their return to Scotland, the ship suffered violent storms, enough to force the captain to dock in Norway for several weeks whilst they passed. The escorting fleet's admiral naturally blamed the storms on witchcraft, and once back in Denmark, several people were found guilty after confession of causing the storm using witchcraft, along with casting out imps to climb aboard the king's ship. When King James caught wind of the trials back home in Scotland, he too ordered a trial to begin, later to become known as the North Berwick Witch Trials. They were the first of their kind in Scotland and saw over 100 accused, imprisoned and tortured, leading to many confessions. King James then went on to write Demonology in 1597, detailing extensively procedures and justifications for persecuting witchcraft from a Christian perspective. In 1604, the Witchcraft Act was amended once again. This time it remained, for the most part, unchanged. However, it was broadened to include the commune of a person with a demonic familiar or invocation of evil spirits. The Act of 1604 might seem like only a slight change. However, by broadening the criteria for a successful conviction in this way, a witch no longer had to be caught and more importantly proven to be causing harm to another with sorcery. A simple confession of commune with the demonic familiar or demon itself was from this point onwards enough evidence for the party to be found guilty. Eight years later in 1612, the Pendle Witches, nine women and two men were held to trial under accusations of murder by witchcraft, 
witchcraft to cause harm to animals, witchcraft to cause sickness, cannibalism and child murder. Of the eleven who were to stand trial, nine were found guilty and sentenced to hanging. One was found not guilty and one died in prison whilst awaiting trial. Pendle was infamous and, though at the time it caused fear, this gradually gave way to satire, dramatisations and eventually even comic caricature. This was a mood that would sharply change as the wars raged and society broke down in the hamlets and towns around England, however, and the Pendle trials would plant violent seeds that would help lay the groundwork for what was to become the most brutal series of witch trials in English history, all of which that would be headed by just one man, aided by an amended witchcraft act that very much played to his carefully crafted M.O. Matthew Hopkins, the self-proclaimed Witchfinder General. Matthew Hopkins' early life is one steeped in obscurity and myth. Whilst there are no surviving documents concerning the man directly, there are enough periphery records that help us to flesh out who he was and divide the facts from the fiction. Hopkins was born in Great Wenham, the county of Suffolk, England. He was the fourth of six children. His parents, James Hopkins and Mary Hopkins, were both devoutly religious Puritans and his father worked as the minister for St John's Church of Great Wenham. In the will of one Daniel Wiles, dated 1619, is the following entry. James Hopkins, preacher of the word of God at Great Wenham, and to his wife, leaving six shillings and eightpence each to their children, James, Thomas and John, when able to read a chapter in the New Testament to buy a Bible. From this we know that Matthew was not born by 1619, suggesting he would have been born in the following several years and with most sources attributing his birth no later than 1620. His father's will was also signed by the executor, a man by the name of Nathaniel Bacon. Bacon was a hardline Puritan, anti-Catholic and held considerable power in the region, where he served in several political positions. His mother, Mary Hopkins, was born to a Huguenot family who had left France in 1572, when 40,000 Huguenots left France following the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre and settled in East Anglia, the region of England encompassing Norfolk, Suffolk and Cambridgeshire. Suffolk itself was a Puritan stronghold and heavily backed the parliamentarians during the Civil War. Hopkins' educational records are equally sparse though from his later writings we know that he could both speak and write English and Latin with a degree of competency. Given that at the time it was not at all unusual for local ministers to be appointed as primary teachers as the role of education was annexed out to the churches, it would not be a stretch to assume he was homeschooled, which would certainly account for the lack of records. Equally as he grew older, it would not be untoward to assume he may have schooled for further education abroad somewhere on the European continent. Given his family's ties with shipping interests in the area, as evidenced in his father's will dated 1634, having some French or Flemish ties, it would not have been unusual to seek higher education on the continent and would once again explain the lack of any formal education records for Hopkins. This is further backed by his first known job as a clerk for a shipping company, 
where the language and knowledge gained from Europe would certainly have helped greatly. There are many legends that State Hopkins worked as a lawyer, mostly due to the manner in which he would later work as prosecutor during the witch trials he became so famous for. However, there is little hard evidence that he ever worked higher in the legal profession than that of a clerk. In fact, in a document titled Notes and Queries of 16th November 1850, a manuscript belonging to one W.S. Fitch of Ipswich refers to Matthew Hopkins as such, a lawyer of but little note. Whilst this manuscript has never been found, in 1974, during his research efforts for his book, Matthew Hopkins' Witchfinder General, published in 1976, Richard Deacon put out an appeal for information regarding Hopkins' early life. He received a letter from a man named Mr. A.T. Percival, who claimed that, as a youth, he worked as a clerk for a shipowner at Mistley, and it was through this experience that he gained the chance later to buy some property in Missley, which included an interest in the old Thorn Inn. I was always told by my grandfather that the so-called Fitch manuscript was really only part of several diaries compiled by W.S. Fitch of Ipswich, and that the item in the notes and queries was only partially correct. My grandfather was a member of the Fitch family, and he used to say that the phrase quoted in notes and queries was misleading. What Fitch had said was that Hopkins made little note in the law, and not that he was a lawyer. I imagine he was something of a clerk today. The Fitch manuscript also made it clear that Hopkins received some of his education in Holland, and that it was from the Low Countries that he obtained the idea of becoming a witch hunter. It is clear that the details of Matthew Hopkins' upbringing are shrouded in obscurity. However, From the previous, we can speculate to a degree whilst remaining true to the facts that we do have. It seems fair to assume that his family would have been fairly well off and that he would have had a religious Puritan upbringing. It is also fair to say that he had some knowledge of the law, more than likely gleaned from working as a clerk, though as an actual lawyer seems a stretch to a certain degree, and one might further assume that as a lawyer he would almost certainly have left a greater paper trail. Lastly, we can say that it's more than likely he would have been aware of the witchcraft traditions of the area, which ran deep. Suffolk and Essex was the 17th century version of a British Bible Belt. The same Puritan population had been the home of the pilgrims who set out for Massachusetts in 1620. Folk belief and religious devotion created a heady mix, and in 1582, Brian Darcy had overseen the St. Osseth witch trials. These trials were, up until Hopkins' lifetime, the largest held in England, and it seems unlikely to think that Hopkins would have had no knowledge of this local history. As the mid-1640s drew in, the Civil War raged. Traditional legal systems had broken down. The weather was noticeably poor all round, with wet summers and cold winters bringing sickness and poor food production, whilst inflation eroded wealth. These were all contributing factors that would open the door for fear to stretch his fingers out to every corner of the country. Matthew Hopkins was aged between 22 and 25 years old, and he had a plan. The scene was set for him to embark on his most famous and peculiar of careers. In 1644, 
Matthew Hopkins crossed paths with a man named John Stern. Stern was equally as puritanical as Hopkins, though as his elder, better read and more learned in the local folklore of witches and demonic influence. Stern had discovered a small sect of witches in Manningtree, where Hopkins was residing. He later wrote an account of the discovery in his published pamphlet titled Of the Discovery of Witches. He detailed his first run-in with witchcraft as such. The discoverer never travelled far for it, but in March 1644 he had some seven or eight of that horrible sect of witches living in a town where he lived, a town in Essex called Manningtree, with diverse other adjacent witches of other towns, who every six weeks in their night, being always on the Friday night, had their meeting close by his house and had their several solemn sacrifices there offered to the devil, one of which this discoverer heard speaking to her imps one night and bid them go to another witch, who was thereupon apprehended and searched by women who had for many years known the devil's marks and found to have three teats about her, which honest women have not. The woman in the tale was Elizabeth Clark, an old, poor widow with only one leg who lived in Manningtree. The main evidence, according to Hopkins, were the three teats found on her body after she had been stripped and searched. These teats were known as devil's marks and were used by witches, according to law, to feed blood to a demonic familiar in exchange for evil deeds. Naturally, they were, in most cases, simple blemishes of the skin, scars, liver spots, warts or any number of skin ailments. However, as long as they are out of place, they would be deemed as evidence enough. Elizabeth Clark was placed in jail and Hopkins and Stern went about the business of coaxing a confession from her. It is here that the importance of the amendment to the Witchcraft Act in 1604 comes into play. Hopkins and Stern did not need to catch the accused in the act of any demonic activity, they simply needed a confession that they had, somehow or other, communed with a demonic force, including an animal familiar. Torture was an illegal practice in 1645. However, there were very few sympathisers with an accused witch, not least due to their initial unpopularity with the local population, and besides, there was very little structured authority to uphold such laws anyway. This allowed Hopkins and Stern to carry out several practices to aid in gaining a confession. They kept Elizabeth for four days and four nights in a jail cell and carried out a practice they called watching. An innocent enough title, however, the reality was far more sinister. Quite different from the passivity suggested, watching involved sitting the accused in a jail cell, watched by guards who would when seeing signs of the accused falling asleep, stand them up and walk them back and forth in their cell until they were exhausted, before sitting them back down and then repeating whenever sleep threatened. Hopkins would later justify this treatment as necessary to find evidence of visitations from their familiars, which, according to his writings, often happened. The accused would also be starved and berated for the duration accused of all manner of witchcraft and sorcery. A nod to a question of guilt was all that it took for the sleep-deprived, emotionally distressed, starved and exhausted prisoner to be found guilty and thrown in prison to await their trial. On the fourth night of such treatment, 
Elizabeth Clark finally gave in, admitting guilt to communion with no less than five animal familiars. A white kitten by the name of Holt, a fat spaniel with no legs named Jarmara, a black rabbit named Sack and Sugar, News, the polecat, and Vinegar Tom, a greyhound with the head of an ox. These names were, according to the seemingly unimaginative Hopkins, names no mortal man could invent, and with the admittance of guilt, Elizabeth Clark was condemned to trial. At the same time, she named five other witches from the village, Anne West and her daughter Rebecca West, Anne Leach, Helen Clark and Elizabeth Gooding. Clearly sorcery was an epidemic. Stern and Hopkins switched roles, with Stern becoming his assistant and second in command, and they added three more members to their crack squad. Mary Phillips, whose speciality lie in finding devil's marks, Edward Parsley and Francis Mills. They sat about Manningtree in the surrounding area, interviewing over 100 people accused in one manner or another of witchcraft and demonic communions. Of these 100, 32 were eventually found guilty. Ella Manza, Piewacket, Peckin' the Crown and Grizzle Greedy Gut were just some of the recorded names of animal familiars found to have roamed in the small area, communing with this large volume of sorcerers in dark alleyways, or more than likely in the minds of the accusers, and even in some cases, they were simply household pets. This mass rounding up of the undesirables became known as the Chelmsford Trials and culminated on the 29th of July 1645 with 32 guilty, 29 of which were condemned to hanging. Only one, Elizabeth Gooding, stood firm against Hopkins' torture and never admitted any guilt. It was time for Hopkins to take this show on the road, for there were communities that needed saving and money to be earned. Hopkins gave himself the flamboyant and now infamous title of Witchfinder General and the crew worked on traditional methods of witch hunting that would cause a fine stir amongst the hamlets and towns across East Anglia. They reimagined a common practice from past trials named swimming and had the accused tied from thumb to their opposite big toe. They then tied a rope around their waist and with one man on one side of a body of water and a second on another, They swam the victim by dunking them in water. Those that sank were innocent and those that floated were accused of casting aside their baptism. And so now, as they had repelled the Lord, the water too repelled them, outing them as a witch. This practice was never used as evidence in a trial. It was simply a very public method of shaming a victim and at the same time promoting Hopkins' services. A second method used by Hopkins, and one which was the speciality of Stern, was named witch-pricking, whereby the accused would be pricked by a sharp needle, and if no blood surfaced or no pain was felt, then Stern would proclaim to have hit a concealed devil's mark. This was made all the easier when using an instrument that was spring-loaded, as Stern was said to have used. Hopkins and his crew worked tirelessly rounding up large numbers of the accused from the local population. They aggravated local grievances, dug up long-standing gossip and were all too happy to lend an ear to a person with a grudge against their neighbour. Overwhelmingly, people with a modicum of wealth accused those poorer than themselves and who they felt had caused them some manner of local trouble. 
Marginalised groups made up the core of Hopkins' witches, with old women, widows, orphans, the poor and the homeless, most often feeling the sharp stab, or perhaps the blunted push, of Stanz's witch pricker. One may at this point judge Hopkins to be a violent man, driven by bloodlust. In reality, however, he was something much worse. In the handful of cases when the accused passed Hopkins' tests, all accusations were dropped immediately, and simple death was not a driving force. For if a victim died during the tests and interrogations, Hopkins risked the law turning upon himself, and would equally lose money he otherwise would have gained from a successful guilty sentence. The heart that drove his scheme was one of a zealot who genuinely believed that what he was doing was correct in the eyes of God, and of course, it paid handsomely too. Hopkins rode through East Anglia, clearing towns of witches wherever he was invited. A keen marketer, hangings were often dispersed throughout the region, often under the guise of a certain hamlet being home to either an accuser or an animal familiar. In reality, this had the knock-on effect of working as a macabre form of promotion, and these small towns queued up to pay him vast sums of money to clear out their witches. By the 26th of July, 1646, he was in Norfolk, where another 20 witches met their fate. In September, he was in Yarmouth, by a special demand of the authorities, where he was recalled again in December. He also visited Ipswich, and shortly after, Adelberg, where he was paid £6 for his services, before moving on to Stowmarket, where he charged £23. At a time when the average daily wage was two and a half pence, These were extortionate sums. Throughout his travels, hitting larger towns, he also stopped in King's Lynn, where he charged £15, and many other small hamlets and villages. Wherever they went, fear and apprehension followed as the accusations rolled in. He latterly justified the extortionate expense to the local populations in his pamphlet such. He never went to any town or place, but they rode, writ, or sent off them for him, and were, for aught he knew, glad of him. This form of vigilante travelling magistrate would not normally have flown, and very few would have been glad of him, with strict rule of law and border controls in place. But in a time of civil war, and when the local legal system had broken down with the crown-appointed officials ousted by the parliamentarians, Hopkins' form of justice was indeed welcomed. This good feeling, however, would not last forever. Within the space of a few months, Hopkins had over 200 alleged witches awaiting trial locked up in jails throughout East Anglia. This in itself began to cause problems, as it was not only costly but difficult to manage at a time of war. Still, Unconcerned with this, the crew maintained their high rate of accusations until the 27th of August, 1645, the date of the Bury St Edmunds trials. These trials consisted of 18 locals rounded up by Hopkins and successfully tried for witchcraft. Around 120 more were kept in a pair of barns, requisitioned as a makeshift jail, and there is evidence that many more died in these two barns whilst they awaited trial. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given the misogyny of the time, one of the most well-documented cases undertaken by Hopkins during his siege of Bury St Edmunds, and perhaps the most important in his undoing, 
was of a male witch, Reverend John Lowe's, an 80-year-old minister. Whilst it is relatively unusual that it was the child of a man and the vast majority of Hopkins' witches were female, it was not the gender of the victim that caused Hopkins' reputation to suffer, but his social standing as a reverend. Lowe's was thought to have been something of a contentious character locally, and many were keen to accuse him of witchcraft. He was subsequently found to have a teat on his head and two beneath his tongue, and was swam in a very public fashion in the moat of Framlingham Castle. Under interrogation, he admitted to having six imp familiars, which he had ordered to sink a ship, killing 14 men, and though this admission was later retracted, and no evidence of any sunken ships were sought, It was all to no avail, and he was hanged along with the 17 others found guilty. John Lowe's was the first foray for Hopkins into what could well have been a politically motivated coup, and the public humiliation of Lowe's did not go unseen. People began to express concern over the manner in which the admissions were being withdrawn, along with the sheer volume of witches being rounded up and the treatment that Hopkins and co. were dealing out towards those accused. Editorials in parliamentarian papers were speaking out against his torturous actions and Hopkins was ordered to cease his swimming activities. Whereby before Hopkins had boasted he had access to the Devil's Book, which he told documented every witch in England, he now began to distance himself from such rumours as they threatened to turn against him. As 1646 began to draw to a close, the Reverend John Gould, a Puritan cleric of Great Staunton, preached openly about Hopkins' actions and even began to associate Hopkins himself with demonic actions. He stood by Lowe as a godly man and contested his innocence after his death. Gould set about collecting evidence of Hopkins' torture and used it as a centre point when he wrote and published a book named Select Cases of Conscience Touching Witches and Witchcraft. In this book, he questioned the existence of imps and animal familiars. He made distinctions between the good workings of a magician and the spells of a witch, and scathingly, he took Hopkins' treatment of those accused to task. In the book, he wrote of the accused, Every old woman with a wrinkled face, a furrowed brow, a hairy lip, a robber tooth, a squint eye, a squeaking voice or scolding tongue, having a rugged coat on her back, a skullcap on her head, a spindle in her hand and a dog or cat by her side is not only suspect but pronounced for a witch. Public opinion at this point disintegrated for Hopkins at a rapid rate. He found that rather than saviour of the people, he was now being viewed as suspicious in his own right and condemned by the men of power throughout the region. Sensing a losing battle, he retired to Manningtree cutting his losses and wrote his pamphlet in which he attempts to justify many of his actions as the Witchfinder General. In his short career as witch hunter, spanning less than two years, Hopkins was responsible for between 200 and 300 women trialled as a witch, making up 60% of all witch trials between the early 15th century and the late 18th century. In total, more people were hanged by his hand than in the entire 100 years previous. Hopkins' life was as short as his career, and despite modern legend that he was captured and hanged for witchcraft himself, the reality of his death was much simpler. 
He died on the 27th of August, 1647, in his home in Manintree, Essex, to tuberculosis, aged at most 27 years old. He was buried in the graveyard of the Church of St Mary at Missley Heath. After his death, the perception of witchcraft and sorcery gradually changed and the trials slowly declined. In 1735, the Witchcraft Act was replaced by a further amendment which instead charged witchcraft as a form of con artistry and labelled offenders as practising the pretense of witchcraft rather than witchcraft proper. This act, amazingly, stood in place in English law until 1951, when it was repealed and replaced with the Fraudulent Mediums Act, which itself was discarded in 2008 as consumer protection regulations took its place. Hopkins existed in a time when there was a considerable vacuum in law enforcement. It was a time of great stress and fear among the populace, and people looked to find answers to the common question of, why me? Crucially, it can be seen that the witch's familiars were never used to better the circumstances of the witch, only worsen the circumstances of their enemies. This point is telling in itself, and when paired with the often outcast and downtrodden nature of the vast majority of the accused, it becomes apparent that personal grudges and puritanical beliefs were a driving force behind many accusations. It was on several levels a complex, perfect storm that allowed for a man like Hopkins to thrive. Montague Summers, English author and clergyman, held no punches when he wrote of Hopkins. He was an orthodox Puritan of narrowest views, enough so far as his own pockets were concerned, and his crusade up and down the eastern counties, which created something like a reign of terror at the time, has caused his name to stink in the nostrils of all decent persons ever since. And that, my friends, was Matthew Hopkins, not really a very nice man. I mean, you can see it anyway, that he clearly wasn't a very nice man, but it's sort of proven later, after he quit as the Witchfinder General and basically went home with his tail between his legs before he got in too much trouble. When he got home, he, he he's and sort of had retired and such. He wrote a book or pamphlet that I mentioned in the story about his experiences catching witches. And to be honest, it's more or less just a justification on his actions. It seems to be he answers questions. I'll, I'll link to this on the website in the show notes. Um, so you can go ahead and read it if, if you want over at darkhistories.com. But he he basically wrote this pamphlet, which was sort of a bunch of questions about him doing bad things. And it was his rebuttal to the questions. So it was almost like an FAQ, you know, like a frequently asked questions for the Witchfinder General. But almost every single question is just, you know, why did you do these terrible things? And then the answers is just him trying to justify it. And he doesn't do it very well. So one of his justifications for doing what he did was that he's a man that doth disclaim that ever he detected a witch or said, thou art a witch, only after her trial by search and their own confessions, he as others may judge. So he's essentially saying, you know, oh, I never really called anyone a witch until after the trial. So I gave everyone, you know, a fair crack at justice. But well, we all know how the justice went. 
So, you know, I don't think he was that stupid. I think he's a fairly devious guy. I think he knows exactly what he's saying there. He's very manipulative. Um, you know, because that, that reply almost shows, you know, I, I, I went along with the law. I, I kind of gave everyone their good justice. But the state of the justice system was such that, well, it just didn't work, does it? You know, he's obviously, he knows exactly what he's doing. And, and one of his justifications for the money that he charged, he just straight up lies. So one of the questions is something about how he fleeces the country uh, and, and charges a lot of money for finding witches. And he just straight up lies and says, lastly, judge how he fleeceth the country and enriches himself by considering the vast sum he takes of every town. He demands but 20 shillings a town and doth sometimes ride 20 miles for that and hath no more for all his charges thither and back again. And it may be he stays a week there and find there three or four witches, or if it be but one, cheap enough, and this is the great sum he takes to maintain his company with three horses. Well, we know from records that that's all straight lies. For starters, he very rarely found only three or four witches, so, you know, he's playing down his body count there for for a start. But the sort of bigger one behind that is saying that he only earned 20 shillings a town, which we have records that show that he had significant sums more than that. So his answer is just full-on lies. His justification for swimming was quite strange as well. One of the questions was, you know, why, why do you do the swimming when you know it's kind of torturous, basically? And his reply was, it was never brought in against any of them at their trials as any evidence. Oh yeah, so, so why why would you do it then? You know, like he doesn't then expand on why he actually did it, which is obviously just a sort of form of spectacle, which is darker in its, you know, that's actually darker in a sense anyway. So he essentially admits to swimming people just purely for spectacle, um, but he doesn't, he doesn't expand on it that much. He just says how, he, you know, it was never brought on his trials as evidence, so it was okay. All right, okay, Matt, cheers then. Sure the people you swam were really impressed by that. The same with the torture as well and keeping them awake. And he says, they being kept awake would be more the active to call their imps in open view the sooner to their help, which oftentimes have so happened. So he actually claims to have seen their imps as well, which, again, I mean, the man was basically, like, his justifications were just straight up lies. And I think he was probably should have just left it alone because by that point his credibility was totally shot so by releasing this little pamphlet I say I doubt it really got him very far in anyone's eyes so yeah should have left it alone Matt it's, it's, a, it's a telling document in a way because he comes across like oh he's a godly man and, and you know he's just a zealot or religiosity sort of drove his work I suppose you'd call it and he wasn't a sort of psychopathic serial killer or, or you know, driven by the murder, which, I again, I don't think he was driven by the murder, but it, it goes to show how devious a man he actually was because he's sort of writing this out in black and white as justifications for what he'd done. And all his justifications are essentially just lies. So, you know, if we need any more proof that Matthew Hopkins was not a very pleasant person, it's all in his own words, you know. <laughs> it's pretty, It's all right there for you. But, yeah, I, aside from that, I mean, it's no mystery, really. Um, 
I thought Vinegar Tom was fantastic. I, I love the fact that, you know, no mortal man could come up with these names. And then there are things like Vinegar Tom and Greedy Guzzle Guts or Greedy, greedy Grizzle Guts. And you just think, oh, come on, son. I could think of that. Every, like like my five-year-old nephew could think of that. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty great. But, uh, and the names were pretty great. Sack and Sugar the Ra- Rabbit was another one that I liked. But to talk about Vinegar Tom, I left this out of the actual story, but he expands on what Vinegar Tom actually was. And so he was, Vinegar Tom was a greyhound, but it goes more into it than that. And to quote from Matthew Hopkins' description of Vinegar Tom, he says, Vinegar Tom, who was like a long-legged greyhound with a head like an ox, with a long tail and broad eyes, who when this discoverer spoke to and bade him go to the place provided for him and his angels, immediately transformed himself into the shape of a child of four years old without a head and gave half a dozen turns about the house and vanished at the door. So, as if being a long-legged greyhound just obviously wasn't enough for him. He had to kind of, you know, he talks about no mortal man having the imagination to come up with those names. Yet, a mortal man, i.e. Matthew Hopkins, had the imagination to come up with a dog with a head of an ox that could transform himself into a four-year-old child without a head. And, and then I love the fact that he does nothing more threatening than turn around in the house a few times and then walk out the door. Brilliant. Okay. It's yeah, so I thought that was quite amusing. But yeah, that that's pretty much it really. There's not much much else to say about it. I mean, in a way, I'm here by myself, so so it's a shame that we can't kind of bat ideas about the story back and forth with anyone. But there's not really much to say. I mean, it's an interesting story, it's a fascinating story, and it's one that actually my ancestors were Huguenots, um, on my dad's side. my late grandmother, um, she sort of researched our family history and it turns out that, yeah, my, my dad's side actually go back to the Huguenots. So that's quite interesting for me, just as a personal aside. But aside of that, there's no mystery here and there's not much to talk about. So, you know, it's, it's quite a good week for me to be by myself, I think. But yeah, it was a, it was a good one. I, I, I did enjoy researching it because I don't know much about this period of English history, actually. So yeah, that was quite quite interesting and yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. So a little bit of show news before we wrap it up. Sally is sadly going to be no longer with us at Dark Histories. She's had a great opportunity at work and therefore has decided that her new schedule is going to be a little bit tough for a while. So she stepped aside and we decided that it's best if we move forward with somebody else. So that's what I'll be doing before the next episode really is is making sure that that's all in place so that going forward dark histories can sort of maintain normality and next episode will be hopefully with a new host so thanks to sally she's still going to be around on our discord if you'd like to drop in and say hi to me or sally and to talk about our discord and we do have a public discord server you can drop in there chat about the episodes if you go to darkhistories.com you can find all the links to all our social stuff we're on Twitter, Dark Histories. Facebook is facebook.com forward slash Dark Histories Podcast. Instagram is dark underscore histories. Basically, we're on all the social things. And if you go to our website, darkhistories.com, all the information's there. And if you hit up the contact page, there's a link there to our Discord server, which you can join and sort of have a chat with everyone about strange things. We're building a nice little community slowly over there. So that that's really good. Yeah, if you want to have a chat about sort of the strange, esoteric, Fultiana, anything a bit fringy, 
or just have a chat with anyone you know like-minded people drop in with there's usually people around it's, it's not a heaving community but it's, it's it was building come help us build it outside of that it's just our patreon i suppose if you do would, would like to support the show you can do so at patreon.com forward slash dark histories for those that don't know what patreon is it's just you can make donations you get some extras like early access and bonus episodes things like that if you're interested check it out that would be really great because really it's our patrons that sort of donate to the show that keep it all running and obviously i really appreciate that because otherwise i wouldn't be able to do this which is what i love so yeah thanks for listening interesting episode a little bit shorter this week obviously a great deal less discussion because i'm just sitting here talking by myself from next episode we will hopefully be back to normality with a new host to introduce to you all so yeah thanks sally for all your time given to the show and forwards new chapter you know new exciting things sleep tight <laughs>